Calm our spirits and our hearts. Let us not worry about the things of tomorrow or this morning or last week or next. Because of the powerful name of Jesus, Lord, You rule the universe. Things do not happen in our lives where You say, Oh, I wasn't expecting that. We say that, but not You. And Lord, we can be calm before You and worshipful because You are God. You are King without rival. The name above all names. We thank You. We praise You. We give You the glory Do Your name this day. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please, please be seated. So Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., you may have heard of him. He served on the Supreme Court for about 30 years. He tells the story of his father... He's junior, so Oliver Wendell Holmes, senior. Now, senior Holmes, he was a poet, he was a doctor, he was a polymath. Now, that's a word you don't hear every day. Some of you may know what a polymath is. It doesn't mean a lot of maths, and it's not one of the uh, islands in the Polynesian uh, chain. It comes from the word polymathes. It's a Greek word. And essentially, the only way we can translate it today is Renaissance man. In other words, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. knew a lot in detail about every subject. An amazing man, honestly. And one of the things that caught his interest was how these newly... Uh, discovered anesthetics impacted his patients. So what better way than to try them out? So he had uh, he had some uh, another doctor administer ether to him as a uh, anesthetic. And as he was going under, as as he was losing consciousness, the secret of the universe came to him, and he was ecstatic. But then he slipped into unconsciousness. And when he woke up, for the life of him, he couldn't remember what it was. And so he thought, you know, the way to work this out is to put myself under again, only this time have a stenographer. And so that's exactly what he did. And so as he was going under, just as before, the secret of the universe was revealed to him. And he spoke as carefully as he could And the stenographer accurately recorded his words. And he went into unconsciousness satisfied that he had solved this great mystery. And so when he woke up, he eagerly looked at the stenographer and he said, What did I say? And she repeated the words carefully to him. The entire universe is permeated with the strong odor of turpentine. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. 
the mystery of the universe remains safe. <laughs> However, today we're not interested in that kind of mystery. In fact, biblically speaking, that's not a mystery at all. Biblically speaking, and particularly as Paul defines mystery in his thinking and the Bible's thinking, it's not an enigma. It's not a riddle. It's not a Gordian knot. It doesn't mean unfathomable. It doesn't mean hidden. Rather, it means something that was secret in the past has now been made known. So something that was secret, we now know. This word in the Greek should sound very familiar to you. It's mysterion, where we get our word mystery. It's used 27 times in the New Testament. And of these, only three are qualified with another Greek word that you know, although you may not know that you know it, mega. So mega means great. And we have a fourth that comes close, but it doesn't use the word mega, it uses another word, but I'm going to give it, I'm going to put that in the list as well. So fourth, and go in order, kind of reverse order. Uh, Behold the mystery that not all shall die, but shall be changed. That's a great mystery. Third, great is the mystery of godliness. Christ was manifested in the flesh. Second, great is the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And for our text, when we look, when we get to the reading, first, great is the mystery of God, of Christ's relationship to the church. We don't usually think of that one as great. In fact, we rarely think of that as a mystery at all. And yet, in the Bible, it's in the level uh, of the highest level. And when we look at this word great, mega, in this sense, it doesn't mean intensity like uh, great simplicity or great folly or great love. It doesn't mean a whole lot of it. That's not what it means. What it means is of primary importance. That it is essential, that it is indispensable. Some of your versions, if you look there, will end up saying profound. So it is with today's message, I begin at the end, a profound mystery, and we will end at the beginning, literally, from the book of Genesis. Why? Because the mysterion in our text is on the same category as the rapture of the saints, the eternal second person of the Trinity, that is Christ manifest in the flesh, fully man, fully God, and the wonder of the hope of glory in us. And there we have this. The union of husband and wife is directly comparable with Christ's relationship to the church and rests on the same level as those other great revelations. So given the exclusivity of the marriage relationship, its value to society as the fundamental building block and of God's original design, uh, which is so rarely held these days, this is extraordinary. And, and before we read the text... It may be tempting for some of you to tune out. I mean, 
After all, you may wonder about this relevancy to everyone. Some of you may not yet be married. Some of you may never marry. Some have been married. And there are all sorts of other circumstances. But not to listen would be to your loss. Why? Because this text speaks directly of Christ's relationship with you as an individual, with you as a person, how He loves you, how He treats you, how His desires are for with you. So, turn with me to Ephesians 5. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 33 where we will learn of this wondrous mystery and how it impacts us daily. Ephesians 5 beginning in verse 25 through verse 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the husband see, uh, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Earlier in the text, the Apostle Paul had spoken of submission. Submission to one another, uh, to your husband, to Christ. Contrary to the worst possible understanding, which is what the world takes, it has never been about obedience to the law, dictation, command, or control. Even though we are commanded, it's the same as commanding to It would be as if you were commanded to love your children. Yes, it's a command, but yes, you're also going to love them. It is and always has been about our relationship with God. It's been about our relationship with Christ and our relationship with one another. In fact, the only reason that we can truly love at all is because, as the Scripture says, He loved us First, verse 32 tells us this isn't just any uh, mystery. It is a profound mystery. It's as profound as the hypostatic union. Christ, fully God, fully man. And we see in the book of Genesis that God didn't create Christ's union with the church on the model of Adam and Eve. In other words, God didn't create Adam and say, Hey, Adam, hmm, I've been looking around here and guess what? It's not good for you to be alone. So I'm going to make a helpmate for you. And that way, 
in the creation, Adam, male and female, he created them. And, and the, No, that's not what God did. What God did was take a divine family perspective as seen in the Trinity itself. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. A family, and He put that design onto the human marriage from for Adam and Eve. It was from a pre-existent divine pattern. And therefore, people, all people who are created in the image of God are designed for family. Did you know that? Some of us are better, you know, with fewer friends. Some of us are better with more friends. But none of us are better without any. None of us are good alone. No one is designed to be separated from others. And so a person cannot fully realize who they are in Christ until they learn to exist not alone, but in relationship with others. What is the first problem that moves towards depression, that moves towards pulling uh, towards harming oneself? Separating from those that you care about, pulling away, backing away, defriending, taking the phone numbers out, no longer coming over to visit or to check in. It's, this is, it's a profound thing. We're designed for one another. It's so profound, this mystery, that it extends beyond the marriage relationship. It goes to sons and daughters. It goes to parents and brothers and sisters and whatever other relationships are found in the body of Christ. And as it relates to Christ, this is so profound, it caused Westcott to exclaim, they become one together. Who? Christ and the church. As remarkable as that sounds, it should uh, come as no surprise really. In John 17, 20 and a, a few verses following, we read this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, in verse 33, Paul, Paul gets it. Paul's a very practical guy. He understands that this mystery is so profound, not everybody's going to get it. And he says, that's all right. If you don't comprehend the depth and breadth of our union in Christ, that's okay. Just love your wife. Just do it. Love your wife, even if you don't get it. Even if you don't understand that your relationship with your wife is based upon a divine, eternal pattern and not a human accommodation. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And as we look at this, we're going to look at this little uh, word here for a second. As. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. It tells us the manner in which he loved. And I can't think of any better passage than to go to Romans chapter 8 to read about the love of Christ. Who 
will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Is that going to separate us? No. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. He goes on to say, neither death, life, angels, principalities, Things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the manner of Christ's love. Undying, ceaseless, abiding. In November of 1876, the, the great evangelist Dwight L. Moody, perhaps you've heard of the Moody Bible Institute, perhaps you've read his life story. Anyway, he was conducting a series of meetings for ministers, and he had over a thousand people uh, that would attend the plenary sessions, and he would, he would preach. Can you imagine having the kind of voice that would preach? effectively to a thousand people. Uh, anyway, it was in Chicago's uh, Farwell Hall and Philip Bliss, uh, one of the most able musicians of the day, uh, was at Moody's right hand. And if you're familiar with hymns, you know uh, some of hymns, uh, his hymns for sure that he uh, wrote or wrote the music for. Uh, for example, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Of course, they sang this at that at that meeting, Jesus loves even me. Wonderful words of life. And I gave my life for thee. Some of those songs we're familiar with, some, some less so, but he, he did a, a lot more than that. And that was three years before that meeting on, in November, same month, in 1873, that a shipwreck took uh, the lives of Horatio Spafford's four children. Horatio and his wife Anna were dear friends of both Moody and Bliss. And so Anna survived this shipwreck, although 226 others did not. And on his way to pick up Anna, Horatio wrote a poem and he asked his dear friend Philip to set it to music. And so it was that for the first time it is well with my soul was heard publicly at that minister's meeting. Though, by the way, just as an aside, if you look at page 493 on your hymn book, you'll find that the metrical title uh, for that song is uh, Ville du Havre, which is the name of the ship that went down at sea. And so it was... It is well with my soul was heard publicly. And afterwards, after this great series of meetings, Philip and Lucy, they went to Pennsylvania for Christmas. Now, Moody, kind of an unstoppable sort of guy, he, he got some more meetings together and he said, uh, Philip, I need you for these meetings. And so right after Christmas, Philip and Lucy said, we're there. Yes, of course, yes. So they packed their big trunks in advance and sent them on, and then they got uh, onto the Pacific Express. Unfortunately, it ultimately ran into this huge blizzard. And as they were going through this blinding uh, snowstorm, the train, there were two engines uh, pulling 11 uh, coaches, and they went through these huge snowdrifts near Astabula, 
Ohio, and passing over a trestle bridge, the engineer heard first the groaning and then the creaking of the bridge. And so he gave it everything there was to give. He pushed and pulled as fast as he could, and that first train engine made it across. Everyone else went 75 feet into the icy river below. Five minutes later, most of the people, hardly anyone was killed, by the way, in that fall. But five minutes later, there was a fire fanned by gale force winds, and it consumed those coaches like, like wooden matches. Witness states that Philip Bliss had made his way out of the wreckage and he was calling for Lucy and couldn't find her in that twisted mess. And then he heard her voice calling his name. And he crawled back in through one of the windows and he found her pinned there. And he realized there was no way that he could extricate her. He could not get her out. And so as the flame took its toll, Philip loved Lucy as Christ loved the church. So hot was the blaze, no trace was ever found. Sometime later, Lucy's trunk reached Chicago, and there on the top in a folder lay the last song that Philip had put music to. The title was, He Knows which begins with these words, I know not what awaits me. God kindly veils my eyes. O blissful lack of wisdom, tis blessed not to know. The first lesson then is that we should take seriously the manner in which Christ sacrificially relates to us, the church, and particularly that scene in the husband's relationship with his wife, in that the relationship with the wife is inextricably bound in the relationship with Christ. The command is crystal clear. Husbands, love your wives. That's a command. As I mentioned before, it's not a command to control. Some people take this to wacky places that the Bible never intends. In fact, the word to love here is from the word agapao, divine love, where we see in John 15:13, there is no greater love possible than laying down your life for a friend, which is precisely what Jesus did. The Scriptures continually point to Christ's sacrifice on the cross as proof of God's love for us. In Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This love is centered in and on the best interest of the other person. It is selfless, not selfish. And none of us love our wives as completely as Christ loved the church. But we strive to. I mean, like, like Philip Bliss, we would certainly 
put ourselves in danger to protect our wife from death or energy. But for most of us, that will never happen. Most of the time, she just wants help with the chores. Second, in addition to having a sacrificial love, we must have a holy love. It's a love that's driven to provide an atmosphere of love and safety, emotional safety, physical safety, such that your wife's holiness is magnified. Verses 26 and 27 tell us Jesus gave his life for the church in order that, in other words, there's a purpose here, in order that he might sanctify her. He wanted her to be all that she could and should be without spot or wrinkle, holy and blameless. According to the Prepare and Rich, one of the foremost faith-based premarital and marital counseling instruments, the ability to say what you want, need or desire and finding mutual agreement around those things is central to a successful marriage. It also talks about how important compatibility is. However, compatibility while pleasing is not the key to a successful marriage. Two people who agree with one another to live lives conformed to the Word of God in Jesus Christ and the Word of God in Scripture, that's the key. True love is always concerned with holiness. And any so-called love that takes liberties and pursues sin is a false kind of love. So-called love that weakens moral fiber is no love at all. Love that diminishes another's character is not love. The love with which Christ loves the church seeks holiness. And if you don't walk in holiness, then you actually will end up leading that person away. According to Risa Willis, uh, she wrote a biography on Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, but Mark Twain, the title of which is this, The Love Story of Mark Twain and the Woman Who Almost Tamed Him. And it's a sad story in that sense. As a young man, Mark uh, Twain, Samuel, right, he fell in love with a beautiful Christian girl. Her name was Olivia. And those who knew her called her Livy for short. And they married. She was devoted to God. And she wanted a, a family altar and prayers at meals and at, at nighttime and then obviously all the Sunday uh, things that go with that. And after they married, that worked for a little while. But one day, Twain told her, Livy, you can go on with this, you know, as long as you want. That's fine. But just leave me out of it. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm done pursuing this. And so fame and affluence and European court appearances, Mark and uh, uh, Livy ended up living quite well. And Willis writes this. Livy tried to civilize Clemens by trying to curb his swearing, drinking, and smoking. But sadly, 
It was Livy who soon accustomed herself to her husband's habits. And although during their courtship she planned to turn Clemens into a Christian, she instead followed her husband. You may not destroy the faith of your wife by unbelief, whether it's stated or practical, the way you live it out, but rest assured it will certainly hinder her. God's design is not only for you to give sacrificially, but also holy. I mean, you can talk about uh, sermons, what you learned in your own devotional life, I mean, uh, Dan has notes put out for the one-year Bible. Uh, Wonderful things that you can read through and and talk about. Finally, and, uh, and briefly, it is not only sacrificial, it is uh, not only holy, but it's also caring. We see this in verses 28 and, and uh, a little bit after. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, that's a very simple analogy. Uh, you know, uh, the, the point here is that the Lord takes care of his body. You take care of your body in the same way that you do that. Care for uh, your your wife. I mean, we, we take care of it. Why? Because it's inseparable from who we are. We know it's a vehicle, right? But if you don't feed it, right, it's not going to work right. And none of us want a vehicle where you have to change the spark plugs that cost you $650. You know, it's just one of those things. If you hurt your finger, your whole body hurts, right? I love this word here uh, that, we, that we find here. Uh, he doesn't hate his own flesh, but he does two things. He nourishes it and he cherishes it. The word uh, nurture is... Uh, is our word here, extrafo. It is a verb and it means this. It means to provide the proper nourishment and environment that is required to grow from childhood uh, into adulthood. In other words, you're, you're caring for someone in such a way that they're growing, that they are becoming who they uh, should be. And it includes not only food and shelter, but also emotional safety and security, the things necessary to life. First Colony Bible Chapel's mission statement reads thusly, through the teaching of God's Word, we, through the teaching of God's Word, we nurture we extrafo and equip people for worshiping God, living godly lives, serving one another, and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is so much said in the scripture concerning God's nurturing and sustaining of, of, of us that we would be here, we could do an entire conference on it. Loving our wife includes that. At all levels, right? Physically, emotionally, 
spiritually, financially. And then there's this other word, cherish. I love this word, cherish, as well. In the original, the word uh, meant uh, to, to keep warm, to make, to make warm. It has the notion of being out in a, a cold and a, a desolate place and the building of a fire so that you can uh, fix your food, so that you can provide uh, warmth. And this is what this word means. It means to draw close and it means tender care. And it's the same kind of care that you would give uh, when someone was hurt or sick. It's this notion of being there for them. And so this is a uh, profound mystery, all of this, that leads us to a sacrificial, a holy and a caring love. Husband, I mean, if I'm just repeating what Paul said, ceaselessly love your wife in sacrifice, holiness, and, and care. And again, the broader picture here is this is how Christ loves you. This is how we should love others. Obviously, it's more particular in the husband and wife, but we love the way Christ loved the church. What that means is you need to be willing to sacrifice of your time and your energy and your efforts. Love her the way you cherish your body tenderly. Make her well-being the center of your efforts. Love her the way you love yourself thoughtfully. And this mystery, a secret, once unknown, is now revealed to us that this entire pattern is based on the relationship that we find in the Godhead. And it's a command. And it's a challenge. And it's a charter. And may God give us the grace to carry it out. Father, we humbly come before you knowing that none of us has the metal to follow you fully in any way. And so, Lord, we are grateful for your forgiveness, for your understanding that we are who we are. And that while frail, we have strength in you. And so bring us, arouse our minds and our hearts to have an understanding of just exactly what it was that you did for the sake of the church. So that we might be able to express that love generally with all that we come to and specifically with the spouse that you have given. And we will give you the praise and the honor and the glory do your name because you are the one true, holy, and living God. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.